May we know Christ more specifically this morning as we hear the gospel reading and as you stand from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, revealing the real Jesus. Starting in verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, we simply this morning pray that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Two hundred and twenty-three days until it's football time in Tennessee. What a football season we had this past year on so many levels that culminated with a very conventional, non-dramatic coaching search, right? Pretty amazing to think back uh, to the chaos that ensued uh, at the end, or the middle, towards the end uh, of our football season. But we landed a coach. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. I don't know how common these are, but the bumper sticker said, just prove it. Y'all seen that? Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. It's really interesting to see that we've got a new coach, but what you soon find out if you follow college football, hiring the head coach is just one piece of the puzzle. There's so many other factors that go with hiring a coach, namely, after the coach is hired, then everybody starts asking the appropriate question, who's going to be on his staff, right? This, this is a major deal. They don't just have one assistant coach. It seems that there's an endless amount of assistant coaches, somewhere to the tune of eight pretty high-level assistants under a particular program. So it's not only significant to think about who the leader and the head coach is, it's also significant to think about who's going to come alongside the head coach and assist him in the mission, in our case, of making Tennessee football relevant again. But then it's not even the assistant coaches. It doesn't end there. What about the players? And that's where the proof is really in the pudding because the very best coaches not only know X's and O's, but the very best coaches are also the very best recruiters. You talk to pretty much any expert, and in a conversation about what really matters the most, easily within the first paragraph of their answer, they will say something to the effect of, college football is all about recruiting. 
You've got to compel players to play on your program. You've got to have a message and a mission. You've got to have purpose and meaning. And then you've got to have a staff that can execute and uphold that to draw people in. It's not dissimilar to what Christ is doing early in the Gospels. He's a leader with a mission and a purpose. In order to accomplish his mission and his purpose, he's got to build a staff. His staff specifically in the Gospels are referred to as the 12 disciples. But then it doesn't end there. Those 12 disciples with their head, with their leader, with their master, Jesus, go out to recruit others to join their mission and their cause. That's what's happening at this point in Jesus' life. The Scriptures don't tell us much about Christ's first 30 years. The Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are biographical accounts written from different sources about things that really went on during this time about this person, person, Jesus. The Gospels primarily pick up Jesus' life at age 30, at this moment, at this time, when He's starting to build what He calls the kingdom. And the kingdom is a power, and the kingdom is a place. And the kingdom is fueled by the gospel, which is a proclamation of the good news, which tells us and told them, you think you're bad? You're actually far worse than you've ever imagined. But you think you're loved? You're far more loved and accepted in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. And that's an announcement. That's a proclamation, and that's not advice. That's news, and it's good. And Jesus is building his program around that news. And specifically in Matthew 4, we see Jesus in a tactical and strategic way adding to his staff in order to build this mission and this vision. What I want us to see this morning from Matthew chapter 4 is that Christ is calling us to follow him. Matthew 4 Verses 18 through 25 is Christ calling us as He called the disciples to follow Him. There's an ultimate sense to following Jesus as in giving your life and trust over to Him. Confessing and professing that you no longer are putting your faith in things of this world. Or you're no longer banking your reality on yourself and your own ideology. You're placing your faith in Christ. So there's an ultimate sense that Christ calls us to Him. But then there's also a continual sense that Christ calls us to follow Him in His mission. He calls us to be disciples. A literal definition of a disciple, according to Craig Blomberg, is this. An adherent. It's like a tongue twister. An adherent or follower of a master. An intimate companion in some endeavor. Often that entails learning and promoting a particular ideology. See, interestingly enough, disciple is not simply a Christian term. In fact, it would be safe to say that everyone is a disciple. Of someone or something. 
And this is where the rub hits us immediately. If we think that Matthew chapter 4, or we see in Matthew chapter 4, is Christ calling us to follow Him, one of the checkpoints we've got to have immediately is, who am I following? And what are the barriers to following Christ? You see, there are behavioral and intellectual barriers to following Christ. Behaviorally speaking, we have very little margin. We're busy, important people. We're distracted people. We're people that often use our energy to numb and to not feel reality, which creates a barrier for us in discipleship for the Christian. But then if you would put yourself in a place outside of the Christian faith, maybe in a place of seeking or even in a place of skepticism, there's different types of barriers that exist for you if you're in a place outside of the Christian faith and the historic Christian gospel. Tim Keller speaks about these barriers as defeaters to Christianity. And he lists these defeaters. These defeaters are seen as intellectual or moral or conceptual barriers that exist, hurdles, if you will, in following Christ. While this is not an exhaustive list, the ones that he identifies are such. The defeater summarized in the statement, there can't just be one true religion. I could never embrace or follow Christ because there's this exclusivity. There can't just be one religion. That's a defeater for me. Another defeater could be a good God can't allow suffering. He's either not good or he's not powerful. And that's a defeater for many. For many. Another defeater, according to Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, is Christianity is a straitjacket. No freedom. Confined within certain moral constraints that are restricting. Another defeater is throughout history, the church has been responsible. And even present day, the church is responsible for so much injustice. Like prejudice and racism. That's a defeater for me, you might say. Another defeater would be a loving God surely could not send people to hell. Can't follow Christ because of this. Or science has disproved Christianity. Or surely, lastly, you can't take the Bible literally. These and others form defeaters or barriers to following Christ. Now, we're not going to be able to dissect or unpack all these different defeaters. I'm just conceding that there are barriers to this call. I would love to unpack these in another setting at another time. These are fun things to talk about. Good dialogue. Hard dialogue. But the point is that I'm simply trying to make in the beginning is this. Christ calls us to follow Him, and it's not easy. It's not easy for the Christian to follow Christ, And it's not easy for the non-Christian to consider following Christ. But keep this in mind. We all follow someone or something. You're either following Christ or you're following another master. You're following the God of the Bible or you're following another God. You're following intentionally or unintentionally. We are all disciples. 
of someone or something. And what I want us to see from Matthew 4 is that we were made to follow Christ. One simple point this morning, cheating a little bit by this, so if you ask how many points this sermon has, one, Christ has made us to follow Him. I do have six subpoints. And as we start to unpack these, maybe it's important to concede one more thing. The reality, especially if you put yourself in a place of faith, and to just confess from the beginning that you are a follower of Jesus ish. C.S. Lewis was known to have said, Christianity is false and of no importance, or it is absolutely true and of infinite importance. But one thing Christianity can never be is moderately important. Surely that speaks to you, right? It speaks to me. We might not say that Christianity is moderately important and that we kind of-ish follow Jesus, but our lives testify to another reality. So let's look in a little more detail what it means to truly follow Christ, what it means to be a true disciple. I want us to unpack this one larger point in these specific ways by looking at the components or the characteristics of Christ's call. And I want us to ask the question, do you hear His call? Do you hear the call of Christ? Because Christ has made you to follow Him. The call of Christ, we will first see, is initiated by Him. When Christ calls people to follow Him, He is the initiator of this call, which was actually a unique approach in His day and time. There were many teachers, just like there are today. It was not as explicit as it was then, but this is true today. Our culture has many teachers, and they come in many forms through the spoken word, through technology, through other media aspects, other ideologies. And the way in which it was done in Jesus' day as teachers and rabbis would walk around, it would be common for them to play a wait-and-see approach to see who comes to them and asks to study under them. It's not dissimilar maybe to someone getting a PhD. Oftentimes when you get to a graduate level education where you're pursuing a PhD, people will choose a school having really nothing to do with the school at large itself, not necessarily the location. They don't care about all these other programs, all these things you consider in undergrad or even that you might consider in a master's program. Oftentimes when people pursue a PhD, they care about one thing, one particular professor. That's oftentimes, the way PhDs work. Wherever that professor is, that's where this person wants to go. And so they seek out that teacher and that professor to become an expert in a particular highly refined field. And that's the way it was in Jesus' time too. But Jesus upends this. When he's calling people to himself, he actually goes to them. He does not wait for people to come to him. Jesus in this call, initiates and goes to others. Os Guinness says it like this, We cannot find God without God, 
We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that our seeking will always fall short unless God's grace initiates the search and unless God's call draws us to Him and completes the search. Why is that true? Because the Scripture tells us that no one is looking to follow Christ. It's just not inherent in who we are as human beings. And so if we're going to follow Christ, it's going to be on the receiving end of an initiation from the Master Himself, seeking us out, beckoning us to follow Him. He comes where we are. It's the, if you will, it's the anti-field of dreams approach. Right? If you build it, they will come. Which, unfortunately, the church has adopted this mentality in the culture. And that's why over the last hundreds, the last hundred in the Western world, and specifically the last 25 to 50, particularly in the West and America, the church is dying There's a number of reasons the church is dying. One of the primary reasons I believe that the church is dying is the church has the field of dreams mentality. If we build it, they will come. Well, guess what? They're not coming. But Jesus never takes this approach. Jesus takes the field of dreams to people. And he beckons them and us to follow, just like he did with Peter, James, and John here. Did you see even where Jesus does this? This is not taking place in the temple. This is not taking place in church. This is not taking place in some sort of small group men's Bible study. Jesus just goes to where they are and speaks their language. He goes into their workplace very comfortably, and he speaks a language that they can relate with. Hey, come follow me. I know you've been fishing for fish. But now, I'm going to call you to fish for men. On their turf, in their place, in their language. Do you hear Jesus speaking to you where you are? In your language. I never will forget, I had some students years ago when I was working on campus... The girl's name was Amy, and she was from Nashville, and she did a study abroad for a semester in Spain, and she met uh, a guy who would then become her husband who was from Poland, and his name was Piotrik, and I had the privilege of participating in their wedding in Nashville, and when it came time to do their vows, and of course, Piotrik, who is Polish, spoke English because, you know, pretty much any educated person that's not American speaks English, and of course, any educated American speaks no other language, but anyway... um, When it got time to their vows, something that was so beautiful was they said their vows to each other in each other's native tongue. So Piotrick, very easily, said his vows in English to Amy. But then Amy, not as easily, said her vows to Piotrick in Polish. That's what Christ does. He speaks our language in a way that compels us to follow Him. So Christ's call to follow Him is initiated by Him. Another characteristic of Christ's call is that it's effective. Do you see this? And we see this at other examples in the Gospels. Even last week when we looked at temptation, 
The enemy comes to Jesus and is tempting him, and Jesus responds with a word. And what is the effect of Christ's word to the enemy? It silences the enemy. We see this throughout the Gospels also, that Christ oftentimes heals simply with a word. Well, here Christ calls simply with a word that is highly effective. He meets these men where they are in their language, and he says, come, follow me. And what does the text say? Immediately. Immediately. They dropped their nets and followed him. It's important for us to see that Christ's word is effective. He initiates and he speaks effectively. Another thing about the call of Christ upon our life. Thirdly, the third characteristic for our purposes this morning is that his call is countercultural and it embodies real diversity. Christ's call is countercultural and it embodies gospel centered diversity. The first way we see this is that Christ is in Galilee. Christ has left Jerusalem, which is where the primary following of Christians are in Jerusalem, which resides in the mountains, geographically speaking, and he moves to Galilee, which is the city. This is where commentators talk about Judaism. Christ's call in himself moves Judaism straight into paganism. And he does this by going to Galilee. There was a saying in the day that Judea leads to nowhere and Galilee leads to everywhere. And that's where Christ wanted to be. Christ wanted to be in the center of culture, calling people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, calling people of every different ideological construct and system of belief and meeting them where they are with who they were, and speaking in a way that was comprehensible and compelling to them. What this meant was that Christ was calling people to himself that were unconventional. Even the disciples themselves were ordinary, but he went far outside of simply calling the 12 disciples to himself. Christ called all kinds of people to himself. Even specifically, Christ called outcasts to himself that populated Galilee because his call was countercultural and it was diverse. I wonder how many of you have seen the film The Greatest Showman. I gather just from a straw poll, most of you. It seems that people are talking about this movie incessantly almost. In fact, in recent memory, I don't know that I've heard people speak so regularly and frequently about a film that's in a theater while it's out, and then furthermore, to talk about how many times they've actually seen it in the theater. It'd be fun to have a discussion. How many of you have seen it? How many times have you seen it? I've heard many people say, I've seen it three times. I've seen it four times in the theater. And then it makes me wonder, what's so compelling about the movie? I saw it this past week, partially because everybody was talking about it. I think there are a number of things that are compelling about the film. One of the things that surely is compelling to people is this search and this call of the outcast, right? 
Interestingly enough, audiences love the film and critics hate it, and I'll not devolve into why there's such discrepancy there. It essentially revolves around the accuracy and facts and all that the movie portrays, but let's just go with the suspension of disbelief for the moment and assume that everything in the film is accurate. P.T. Barnum goes out to the highways and to the hedges and puts bills and posters on posts and doors calling weird people, calling outcasts, calling people that no one else cares about, calling people that might have physical abnormalities, calling people that have social abnormalities, calling people that are the, forgot, that are the forgotten. And we all can relate with that to some degree, right? We're all compelled by that to some degree. Well, that's what Christ was doing specifically by going to Galilee. He was calling the outcast, the unconventional, the pagans to himself. He was calling the poor and the lowly, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. And he had a message of hope and healing. So Christ's call is initiated by him. Christ's call is effective. Christ's call is countercultural and diversive. And then Christ's call is also compelling. I mean, immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. What's going on here? I would like to put forth that what's going on here is these were men. We know the first two actually had some prior interaction with Jesus. Who saw a man that had a message, number one, that was compelling, but number two, it was compelling because they saw a man that spoke words that he believed. And at the end of the day, it's very compelling to hear people speak words that they actually believe. One of my favorite stories of conversion in my time on campus was with a girl named Claire, who was a foreign exchange student from France, Some of you would know I talk about it a decent amount. Uh, Western Europe, spiritually speaking, arguably is the darkest place in the world. Uh, France, in many ways, could be an epicenter uh, for that darkness, spiritually speaking. So needless to say, she did not grow up in a Christian home. She did not grow up with an understanding of the gospel or a favorable view of the church. But through a series of relationships, through students in RUF and at Redeemer Church at the time, she started to come around. She started to come to RUF. She started to come to church. And she talks about and speaks very poetically. I'll have to read it to you sometime at another time. The particular Sunday that she would probably put her finger on as the time that she came to believe and follow the call of Christ. But one of the things she said in that moment, speaking about the preacher that day, which was not me. I was longing to hear a message from somebody that really believed what they were saying. Unfortunately, I actually think that there's many voices and messages in the Christian church today that people don't believe because the people that are saying them don't believe it or at least don't embody it in a transforming way. But Christ had a message that was compelling because he believed what he was saying so much so that they immediately dropped everything, and followed him. So Christ's call is initiated by him. It's effective. It's countercultural. It's compelling. It's also demanding. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
a Christian who thrived and then was martyred under the Nazi regime in Germany who knew a lot and has a lot to say about the cost of discipleship. In fact, he wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this is a sticking point, and understandably so. Like, if this is a hurdle for you with regard to belief or following Christ, I commend you. And if this is not a hurdle, then you're not paying attention. Because Christ's call is demanding. It doesn't ask for a little, it asks for all. It doesn't ask for Sundays, it asks for every day. A great summary of true discipleship is Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Ken Geyer, who's a great writer of Christian devotional literature that I bet you haven't heard of, you should look him up, says this, Honestly, I want to follow Christ. I want to be like him, but honestly... I want to be like the Christ who turned water into wine, not the Christ who thirsted on the cross. I want to be the clothed Christ, not the one whose garment was stripped and gambled away. I want to be the Christ who fed the 5,000, not the one who hungered for 40 days in the wilderness. I want to be the free Christ, walking through the wheat fields with his disciples, not the imprisoned Christ who was deserted by them. We don't have a choice. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, if you want to share in the glory of Christ... I do. It's kind of like what I'm in it for, right? That's what all the marquees say. Like, I want Christ's glory. There's one more thing Paul says. You also got to share in his suffering. Oh, and by the way, these are going to kind of be intertwined in a really confusing, tenuous way. And it's not like one day you're going to have glory and one day you're going to have suffering. Actually, you're going to have to live in the tension pretty much every day of the already not yet and the blessings and the battles and the glory and the suffering because following Christ is demanding. He's not asking for a little. He's not even asking for a lot. He's asking for it all. It's demanding. G.K. Chesterton said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting or lacking. It has been found difficult and therefore left untried. Because you see, here's the reality. Even though the call of Christ is demanding, it's worth it. It's such a hard proposition that only supernaturally can we want to follow Christ. You remember, He's the one that initiates. It's been found difficult and therefore left untried. Because you know what? If you try it, it's not going to leave you wanting it's going to leave you fulfilled. And that's the last point for us this morning. So Christ's call before us this morning to follow Him is initiated by Him. It's effective. It's countercultural. It's compelling. It's demanding. And then lastly, the call of Christ, and this is good news, is fulfilling. You know, in the way where you think this is what I was made for. Like we're all looking what we were made for. And what I want to put before you this morning to consider is that you were made 
to follow Christ. We all yearn and long for something bigger than we are, to be a part of a mission and a purpose that goes outside of ourselves. And Christ gives us the opportunity and beckons us ultimately and continually to follow Him. But we close with the question, how, how can we do this? I mean, we started with football. What if we end, start to end a little bit with football? You know, in uh, the tunnel at Tennessee, on their way out, you know what they do, right? You know that all the players come and they slap a sign that says what? I will give my all for Tennessee today. And so it would be very compelling for me as a preacher and very conventional, especially in broad evangelicalism, for me to close in prayer by saying, you know what? If Tennessee players can give their all for Tennessee, you can give your all for Christ. Let's close in prayer. But that'd be really good advice. It wouldn't be really good news. Let me tell you good news. The call of Christ is this. He gave his all for you. That's the difference. The primary and ultimate price that has been paid. Christ has met the demands that we could never meet. And furthermore, Christ has promised to be with us. And Christ's witness in following Him in this call is what is ultimately fulfilling. Speaking of The Greatest Showman, I did enjoy the film despite my proclivity to really trust critics. It's a fun movie to see if you had not seen it. Soundtrack is great. Same people that did La La Land and the same people that did Dear Evan Hansen, which is the best musical on Broadway right now. Um, Something that I actually like more than even the movie is a clip that someone sent me this past week uh, that kind of is a making of the movie. And so Hugh Jackman stars as P.T. Barnum. And they are talking uh, with the director, Michael Gracie, in this YouTube clip, and you can search this and see this, um, about a particular significant session called the green light session. And in films, what happens is they've got to get all the cast of characters together. They've got to have the script together. They've got to have the executives together. They've got to have the you know, theaters together. They've got to have the money people together in order for a movie to be greenlit, right? To get the thumbs up. We're going to do this thing. And so they were doing this for The Greatest Showman at a studio in Manhattan. And a few days prior to the big session of the movie being greenlit, Hugh Jackman calls Michael Gracie, the director of The Greatest Showman, and said, hey, little problem. Um, I had this skin cancer on my nose. I've got 80 stitches, and my doctor has forbidden me to sing. Well, it's obviously going to be better by the time the film would launch um, and when they would actually film the film. Um, But what this meant was he wasn't going to be able to sing during the green lighting session. And so the director smartly said, don't tell anybody. Nobody's going to come to hear Hugh Jackman sing and have him not sing, you know, the lead role. And so they get everybody in the room, and at the very beginning of the meeting, Hugh Jackman stands up with the director and tells them how this is going to work. And what they say is, Hugh is not going to be able to sing, but he's going to be with us. And he's going to act out every part. And he's going to do the motions, but you just will not hear his voice. And the session went on like that until they came to one point. 
And when they were starting to sing the song that really is the most climactic song in the film with regard to the plot entitled From Now On, Hugh Jackman is doing what he's normally done, which he's standing next to actually another actor, Jeremy Jordan, who's, a star, who's the star of Newsies and he does TV stuff. And he's standing in for Hugh Jackman in this particular session. And Jeremy Jordan is singing all the parts of Hugh Jackman, following the call, right? And it gets to this one song. Hugh has not sang one note all night. And he gets to the seminal song from now on. And all of a sudden you start to hear faintly Hugh's voice, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Yes, it starts tonight. Let this promise in me start, like the anthem in my heart. From now on, from now on. And he starts to build, and his voice starts to get louder. And the whole tenor in the room changes. The dynamic is unbelievable. And he's singing louder and louder. And the chorus joins in louder and louder. And then they all end with this unbelievable chorus. And we will come back home. And we will come back home. Home again. And we will come back home. And we will come back home. Home again. And we will come back home. And we will come back home. Home again. I don't know if those people have had a, ever experience a more fulfilling moment in their life. And I thought, what a great picture of that is for us in following Christ and who Christ is. What Christ has promised us in this call is to be with us and to invigorate us and to fulfill us. But Christ is not only with us. Christ sings over us. And that's what compels us to follow Him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your truth and Your Word. We thank You for the way that Your truth is explicit in Scripture. And then we also thank You for the way that Your truth pervades our culture. I pray that You would open our eyes and open our ears and help us to see the message of the Gospel, not only in books like Matthew, but also in films and songs and other books and in people. We pray that you would compel us from you giving your all for us that we would then respond appropriately and give our all in following you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.